We are now getting to a section and a place in the book of Luke where Jesus is headed for Jerusalem to be crucified. He's on his way there. He had spent much of his ministry in the Galilean region around the Sea of Galilee, ministering, doing miracles, preaching the kingdom. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has about six months uh, to go um, until that time. And now as he's, he's ministering, he's speaking to his disciples, particularly the, the 12, but there's a broader group of the 70. And then there's even a broader group of people that are at different levels of interest in following him. And so they're just kind of moving like an amoeba around, headed towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is using these opportunities to prepare his disciples and all his followers for what is to come because they would be the ones that would then carry out the work of Christ after Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven, that that baton would be passed to the disciples and then the early church. And from that point on, it's always been the followers of Christ who are carrying on the work of Christ. And so we're going to look at particularly what Jesus is saying in regards to the work of Christ and he want, what he wants his workers or his disciples to be doing in his absence in regards to carrying out his work. And so we finished last week looking at the end of chapter 9 in verse 62 where it says, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was making it very clear that a true disciple of Christ is one who has gotten to the point to where their life is given to Christ to live for his purposes. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that we have died to our old life, our old ways, our old self, and we've come alive to our life in Christ, and now we live for Christ. And we live for His purposes. So what does that look like? So how, how does that sort of translate into what we're doing? And so we have to ask ourselves the question just right off the bat, if we're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, if we're truly born again, if we're a Christian, then is our life adequately and correctly reflecting the life that Jesus has set out for the believer to, lead, to live? That's really the question. Now, what, what does that look like? Well, I want to read a, a few scriptures just to kind of get our wheels churning in our head in regards to what Jesus has said about being a disciple. So Matthew 28, 19 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, why does Jesus say that? Is that just for the disciples? Is that just for certain people? Is that for people that went to seminary? Is that for people that get paid? That's that's really what the church is. That is the Great Commission for all believers. And the Great Commission for all believers is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul, in his letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, really reflects on this understanding of the difference that happens in the life of a person when they receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So he's basically saying to be a new creation in Christ has with it then a new purpose and a new function, and that's to bring other people into a right relationship with God because they themselves have been brought into a right relationship with God. Now probably most of you have been brought into a relationship with God through another person. If that's the case, would you raise your hand? If someone brought you to Christ by telling you and explaining to you and teaching you about the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ, can you raise your hand again? So pretty much everybody, almost everybody, you are here, and not only here, you are having your name written in the Lamb's book of life because someone told you about Jesus. Isn't that something? So what is now the prerogative that God has placed on our life is to tell someone about Jesus. The same thing. This is how it works. That's, that's just a, such a beautiful thing to see all your hands raised up and, and you probably have someone in your mind that had been telling you about Jesus, that had been praying for you to come to Jesus, that has been explaining and, and going to the effort to bring Christ to you. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he goes on and says that we are ambassadors for Christ, get this, as though God were pleading through us. Have you ever considered that as a Christian that God has actually chosen you, saved you, and now is wanting to plead to the unbeliever through you. Because John 3.16, I know you guys probably know that, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so that is, that is the thing that God has called every believer to be available so that God himself would plead with other people through us. I find that heavy and yet at the same time amazing. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and also the Greek. Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter 1.3 says, But I sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. And then I like what the Apostle John said in his third epistle, where he talked about, for his life, the greatest thing in his life, which gives him the greatest joy, would be to hear that his children walk in truth. Have you ever considered that preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, is really bringing people to the truth? Not to a theory, not to an opinion, not to another of many other religions. It is the one and only truth. The truth that sets people free. And Jesus proclaimed that I am the truth. 
Jesus himself is it. And so this is our prerogative, this is our purpose, this is our life, but this is what Jesus is explaining and demonstrating as we go through the book of Luke, specifically in the section of Scripture that we're in. So look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and He sent them two by two before His face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So this is the second time that we have, in the book of Luke, seen Jesus send people out. The first time was the twelve. Now the twelve is growing to the seventy. The seventy disciples that we see here, this larger group, are those that he, it says, appointed. So this is how it starts, an appointment. I like how that word just kind of describes a purpose that has been set by God for our lives that are much further beyond what we can see, think, or imagine. It is true as we grow up, we make a lot of plans. We're very little. My, my son, who's four, last week wanted to be, actually two days ago, wanted to be a police officer, but yesterday wants to be a construction worker. His plans, he's already making them. They're changing daily. But what he doesn't know, that God already has a plan for his life. And... What these 70, what the broader group of followers of Jesus that now he's commissioning, that he has appointed them something. But generally, we can look at this and, and know that on a, in a broader way, every believer is appointed to this ministry of reconciliation, ministry of making Christ known. As Jesus appointed these 70, it says, and then he sent them. So there's always an, an action to an appointment. And that's the hard part a lot of times for us as believers is to take the action. The easier part is to gain information, to learn, to appreciate and to enjoy the fellowship that we have with the Lord, but that has to lead to some sort of action. The truth that God gives to us regularly in His Word of God, it's, it's meant to bless us, but it's meant to bless others as well. We are not to be as the Dead Sea where nothing flows in or out, but more like the Jordan River, living waters, things flowing in and out. This is how we gain more understanding and more insight from God. It's when we take in, but we give out. It's always meant to be like that. We are meant to be those who give what God gives us. And as we give what God gives us, He gives us more. That's one of the secrets of those that are growing and thriving in the Lord. They're, they're taking in and they're giving out. The more they're giving out, the more you give, the more you get. And this ongoing taking in, giving out, taking in, giving out. And so this is what Jesus is, does. He says, you've been taking in a lot. Now you've got to go out. You've got to take what you got and take it out to give others what you got. Sorry for the bad English, but... Just trying to make it sound cool, but anyway... So he sends them out, and he, he has some uh, a prescription. This, I don't think this uh, prescription uh, can be carried out precisely. Of this is the the model, the exact model that that everyone who goes out should do, because there's some differences in the things that he said in the different groups that he sent out. But the principles we take, and the principles we take are. He appoints, we're all appointed, 
and we're all appointed to go. It says for this particular group that they were to go into every city and place where he, Jesus himself, was about to go. So as Jesus gets closer to the cross, he wanted to cover as much area and territory as possible to prepare people for what he was about to do in Jerusalem. And so in verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is truly great. So that's the reason he sends people out. That's the reason he came. Imagine when Jesus came into the world, the understanding of the harvest or the need. The need was great. Jesus was passing on that understanding of this great need to his disciples as he would initially call his disciples and show them their need. You remember Peter, when Peter realized at the Sea of Galilee that Jesus was truly God, the sent one, he fell on his face and he said to Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. When he came in contact with Jesus, he realized his need. His need wasn't for more fish. His need was for forgiveness of his sins. And the presence of Jesus in the face of Peter caused Peter to realize his true condition and also his true need. And Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Expressing the greatest need. So here Jesus he sends them out, and you might think that maybe as they're being sent out, they might think things like, do we need to do this? Why is this so important? What's going to happen when we go out? Is it all about doing miracles like Jesus did? And Jesus tells them straight up the reason he's sending them out. It's because the harvest is great. The harvest, he's using a metaphor to describe this great need, just like in an agricultural community, that they'd have a great need for food, and there would be a time to gather that food in. And Jesus is saying the need for souls to be saved is great. He's telling them that in his time, but that is no different than for us in our time. And we may have the idea that the need is not great. We may think that we live in, using strong air quotes, a Christian nation and Christianity and churches are all around and people have already heard the message over and over again, the need is not great. But this is the reason we go, because the need is great. Because people in masses are dying and going to hell for eternity. There is no greater need than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater purpose. There's no greater reason to exist on the planet than for the purpose that God has given to the believer, and that's to go out into the harvest. The harvest is great, he says. And in, in Matthew 9, 35-38, we get a, a little more insight in this understanding of the harvest. And Jesus in, in Matthew 9.35, as he looks at the this masses of people, he makes a comment because his heart was so moved 
from compassion at seeing the masses of people. And it says that they were weary and scattered. Weary and scattered. What a great description of life on earth. Weary and scattered or disenfranchised. Having no direction. Having no authority greater than oneself. Having no clarity, no truth. Living for self, self-will, self-pleasure, according to one's self-desires. And that lifestyle is tiring. That lifestyle will wear you out. Running from event to event, from purpose to purpose, to try to find real meaning, to try to find satisfaction, to try to find something that will last, is like what the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said, all is vanity, all is empty, except God. This was the motivation in which Jesus came to the earth because of the weary, scattered human existence that God saw and had compassion on. Jesus further commented in Matthew 9, 35-38, He said they were like sheep having no shepherd. Why would He say that? Because God created human beings in His own image to have a relationship with Him. That relationship would be such where God would be the master, supreme authority in a human being's life. And a human being would worship God in spirit and in truth and follow God, take orders from God, take truth from God, understanding that God is the reason for everything. He is the creator and the sustainer. And so man properly walking in a relationship with God then is living according to the purposes in which God created that man. But at the same time, man living apart from God is living in a way where their life is like a sheep without a shepherd. Aimless, lost, unsatisfied, confused, and scared. And this is what Jesus is saying, that if you are a believer, you have the obligation to go into that world with the message of reconciliation, bringing people back to the Lord Jesus. So the harvest is great. But then he says, but the laborers are few. The amount of people that are actually going into this harvest are few. And so what that means is there's usually a very small amount of people doing what God has called a very large amount of people to do. And Jesus is demonstrating now that the calling goes beyond himself to the 12, to the 70, and eventually to all believers. This work is an appointment for all believers. All believers are appointed to this work. And all believers find their greatest purpose in surrendering to God's purposes and following God in this work of gospel ministry. But unfortunately, the laborers are few. So what should we do? He has an answer to that. He says, therefore, pray. I love that. Pray. That caused me to ask myself, have I been praying for laborers? to enter into the harvest? This is the the answer. This is what Jesus 
is calling us to do. So the, the first step, if you want to take an action step, is that we would look at what we're talking about in being sent. And we'll start praying that our life would be dominated by fruitful prayer for the Lord to send people into this great harvest. So he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But then notice what he says. Pray for more laborers, but you go. That's interesting. He doesn't say, well, don't do anything until a bunch of people sign up for this. Pray, but go. Verse 3, go your way. Pray for laborers, but, but go. And as you go, here's what you have to know. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. So as Jesus first anchors deep in their heart this great need, he wants them to know it's going to be hard. It's not going to be popular. It's not going to be accepted. And the description that he gives is that as you go out, you're going to be hunted. There is going to be anger and hatred at what you say. What you say will bring about the fangs of the evil one. Because this message of salvation is hated by the enemy. The enemy would love for all of us to sit here and have recliners even. Like going to the movies and you have the recliners and they bring your food out and watch the movie and say, well, that was a really great movie. The enemy would be okay if you just learn things about God but never shared things about God. You'd be somewhat okay with that. But as soon as you start opening up your mouth and speaking Jesus, the predators will come out. The wolves will come out. And they'll come for you to stop the message. That's what they want to do. They want to stop the message. But I want to encourage you, you don't have to stop the message. Because Jesus said, upon the profession or confession, I should say, that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Christ, the gates of Hades will not prevail against that. As long as we're sticking to the gospel and sticking to the word, Satan can have nothing on us. God, we have the power of God going in the power of God with the message of God, and that won't be stopped. So be encouraged to continue to go in the things of God as a lamb of God, knowing that you have the protection of God. But understand, there is a hatred for the message. So as we consider the harvest, as we consider the motivation for the great need for people to go out, it, it's really just saying there are many masses of people out there that God wants us to gather into His presence through the saving message of the gospel. The second thing that we find is in verse 4. As he sends them out in a particular way, he wants them to know that they must depend upon him completely. That it won't be about money that will make converts. In fact, money can possibly distract from converts, but it'll be about their dependence upon God. Notice what he says in verse 4. As you go out, carry... Neither money bag, so it's like a wallet or a purse, or a knapsack, like a duffel bag or a backpack. 
nor sandals, it means like extra shoes. And as you go, as you're, you're moving to your destination, greet no one along the road. In other words, don't get distracted from you, what you're called to do. Don't have this idea where we're just going to chit-chat to every single person that we find along the road. And, you know, that sometimes can replace what God has called us to do in regards to preaching or sharing the gospel. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm just nice enough, then someone will get saved. And so we'll chat about all these various topics, and we'll never get to the most important thing. And that's the gospel. We'll never get to that. So don't mistake chit-chat and talk about recreational activities and just leave it at there and think they're going to get saved because we both like the cowboys. Refraining from comments there. A lot, of, a lot of things going on there. But now understand the point. There's nothing wrong with chit chat. But do you get what he's saying is you, and so you can look at it as the church, you're, you're on a mission not to just get people in your house and have a lot of recreational activities to get people to come to those. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the message. It's all about the truth. It's all about that. That's the important thing. It doesn't mean you don't you know, bridge gaps. You can't just you know, normally be friends with people. But understand. Understand this great need and the great gift that God has given us with the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually has an ability to change someone's eternal destiny from going to hell on the broad road of destruction to going to heaven for all eternity. So never forget that. And so in verse 5, he says, as you go, here's, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to these different villages. And as you go, you're going to have to trust me for my provision you're not going to take a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make you feel comfortable. Well, I'm okay because I have a bunch of stuff. No, go. Be on purpose with God, what God has called you to do. And, and when you get to these places, he says in verse 5, whatever house you enter, say to the house first, peace on this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. So what he's saying, and this kind of goes into some of the, the traditions and the different customs of the day where travelers, it would be fairly normal as they go through towns, they would uh, stay at people's homes because there weren't hotels and lodging like we have. So as they would travel through these towns they're, or villages, they're... Um, their purpose and their calling would be to go to these towns and go to a house. This would be normal. And as you go to the house, you would see if you're accepted or not. When it says, if a son of peace is there, that's just a phrase that would be used probably of the head of the household that would open the door. And if that person is one who accepts you and receives you, then that's good. Then your peace, get this, here's, here's the amazing thing about this. These disciples were going in the name of Jesus to share the kingdom of God with these people. If they went to a house and they opened the door and, and they said, hey, peace be on you, and they allowed them to come in with these disciples that came to the house, they brought peace to the house. Household peace comes when Jesus comes into a house. When Jesus comes into a life first, and then in a household, and then in a community, and then in a state, and then in a nation, 
what we find here, it's peace is all in relationship to a relationship with God. And so if you go and you say peace to this house, and remember, they're going in the name of Christ, and, and they come out, or the head of the household comes out, and he's there, and he accepts you, then there will be peace on that house. But notice this, but if not, so that, that person that's in charge of the house, they had an, uh, an opportunity to say, no, we don't want what you're bringing, we don't want what you have, we don't want your message, we don't want the messengers that you are, we don't want that. Then notice what happens. It will return to you. So the peace that these disciples had, It won't be shared because of the rejection of those who rejected the peace of God. So those who brought the message, they would still have peace. But those they wanted to share the message with, they wouldn't have this peace. So in verse 7, it says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So in other words, if, if they let you in the house, say, yeah, you can stay here, no problem. Then that household would be filled with peace. And they would be able, and, and Jesus wanted them just to stay in that house, not to one day stay in that house and then go to another house the next day. He just wanted them to stay there. This was a, a model that Jesus had where he had his headquarters in Capernaum which is a city or a village right off the Sea of Galilee. And he would stay there in Capernaum, and then he'd go out from there to do his ministry, and he'd sort of come back to the same house. So that's what he's telling them to do. He says, do not go from house to house. So what is happening here? So Jesus is giving them instructions. And this is something that, you and I, as we're thinking about our own salvation and who brought salvation to us, the individual that shared the gospel with us. And now we realize that the gospel has saved us and God has given us that message to share with other people. And so we start to think, well, what do I do and where do I go and what is God calling me to do and where is God calling me to go? So the first thing is just to know it starts right where you're at. So your ministry is right where you are. That's where, that's where you start. Just think about where you are and understand that you're there for a reason. That's your mission field. Whether it's your household, whether it's your job, whether it's school or sports activities or the town you live in or whatever. So you start praying. And you, you ask God to give you divine appointments. He has appointments for you. He says that. So you start asking God to lead you into places and to people that you can share the gospel with, you can share Christ with. And as, as you do that, there will be different responses and different things. But at the same time, you're praying, Lord, this harvest is so great. Send out other people. And at the same time, you're making yourself available for wherever other place God wants to send you. Maybe it's right in your church body. Maybe the opportunity is right here, serving the Lord with the gifts that God has given you. And the opportunities that God has given you right here. And maybe it's to go plant a church somewhere. Maybe it's to go be a missionary somewhere. Maybe it's a local ministry. Maybe it's a faraway land ministry. But the point is that you're open to, Lord, I desperately want to be used by you. So you're the one who orchestrates everything. So I'm presenting myself to you. And I ask you, Lord, to direct my steps, to lead my path, path. I, I'm asking you to make me a vessel, an instrument of bringing forth this message of salvation. And so when that, that happens, and what God is saying here in 
the second party saying, okay, I will, but you have to depend on me. This is my work. And you don't need more things or greater things. You just need to depend on me. Because you have, the, have been given the words of eternal life from God. And so depend on me. So that's a, a big part of this. When we start to realize and understand our calling and our purpose is to bring forth the gospel, then we have to understand we have to depend on God. Because there is a certain power of God that works through us in order to reach the hearts of men. Because the gospel is such where it reaches the deepest part of a human being. And so the dependence on God is so important. And this is what God teaches us as we go out. This is why taking on the Great Commission as our own helps us so much. Not just those who God brings in our path, but it helps us so much. Because it teaches us to depend on God like nothing else. Going and putting yourself in the the place where God is giving you these, these words and the truth that has set you free, there's nothing else that will grow you as being forced to depend on God because you have taken God's word seriously and have allowed yourself to be put in a position to be used by God in this way. And maybe that's why many people retract from this ministry is because it requires to depend on God. It requires God to work in us. If he's not going to do the work, nothing's going to happen. So he needs to give us the boldness. He needs to give us the words. He needs to give us the strength. And he needs to bring those words to the heart of an individual to the place where they bear fruit. But see, notice the last thing. With all with this great harvest and God's help that he gives us, eventually it all comes down to the individual that's hearing. And that may even be right now. So whatever is being said here, there will be different reactions to it. Someone this morning could get saved. Several could get saved. Several could not accept it and not care about it. Several could be indifferent about it. Why is that? The message is the same. What I'm saying is that's, that there's nothing different. It's because the hearing of each individual is different. What makes the difference? The heart. The heart. So a rebellious heart is going to push back and say, I don't want to be infringed upon. I want to live my life. I don't want to think about what God wants me to do. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. And there's going to be a a natural fleshly rebellion. But the other person is going to say, These are the words of eternal life. God will open the eyes to the willing person that truly wants to see, and they will see the truth, and that truth, when accepted, will set them free. So the message is the same, but here what Jesus is telling his disciples is like the receiving of that message is going to vary depending on the individual. So watch What he says in verse 8, he says, So whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as set before you. So don't be picky. Which, if you go on the mission field, that could be difficult because there's a lot of strange things they may set before you. And he says, if they set them before you, just eat it. Don't complain about it. He says in verse 9, and heal the sick there. So God's giving them a specific power for this mission 
to physically heal people. And, and when you're doing that, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. So that was their message. So as they, they went out, their mission was that they were empowered to physically heal people by the word of God through them. But that wasn't the reason that they were going out. The reason they were going out was to preach the kingdom of God. That was the whole thing. So notice it didn't seem like this was a really flashy message. didn't seem like it was spiced up to be more rel relative. It didn't seem like there's a bunch of additives to it. it. It seemed like they had a simple message that the kingdom of God is near, and that kingdom of God was Jesus. So their message was all about Jesus. It was about the coming of Jesus, a simple message, but the message was powerful. So in verse 10 it says, Whatever city you enter, and they, don't not, they do not receive you, then go out to the streets and say, so publicly, so if you go into the city and they're saying, get out of here, then go out. And verse 11, it says, the, say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. In other words, that was a custom where they'd go in the city and they would walk in the city picking up the dust on their sandals and if they weren't accepted, they would leave and say, I don't want your rejection upon me. Your rejection, you're going to have to deal with. It would be sort of like an Old Testament prophet that make a, a public demonstration of the message of God. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So he says it again. They say it, or Jesus says it again. Tell them, Hey, look, you're rejecting, but here's what you're rejecting. You know what that means? It means that our message must be clear enough so that a person knows what they're rejecting. If the message isn't clear or if we're afraid to say certain things, and then you're asking someone to receive the message and they don't even know what they're receiving or what they're rejecting, Jesus is saying, make sure they know. Make sure they, they know, which what Jesus would say later, that they're a sinner. And because they're a sinner, their sin will lead them to eternal hell. But Jesus came so that didn't need to happen. Make sure they know that Jesus came to save them from that. Make sure they know that if they reject Jesus, they reject the only way to be saved from their sins. Make sure they know that. So when they're rejecting, they know, I'm rejecting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And as I do that, here's what the Bible says is the result of that. He goes on in verse 12, and he says, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable... In that day, so there'll be a day of judgment for Sodom than that city. So he's going back to an Old Testament example and the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying, you disciples that go out, if that city rejects you, let them know that there's a consequence to rejecting Jesus and the message of Jesus, and the consequence is judgment, and if you don't think there's any judgment, then just go back to what the Bible says about Sodom. Point them back to that. That there is a clear judgment in a clear town, and there's a clear reason why. And let them know that, so that they know there's precedent, because I think that's appropriate, because a lot of people just don't believe that God would ever judge anybody. But the whole Bible talks about a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, and that's what Jesus saved us from. And he even says, it's, it's, you think Sodom was bad. Those who are rejecting me now, it's going to be worse. And then he goes on in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin, another city around the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida, another city around the Sea of Galilee. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, another Old Testament example of God's judgment, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. That was a way of showing mourning. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament city that was judged, It'll be better for them at the judgment than for you. And then another city, Capernaum. This was Jesus' headquarters. You are exalted to heaven. Why does he say that? In Capernaum, Jesus did the most miracles during his time there in Capernaum. You are exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. And he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And so it all comes down to this final word that these disciples were to tell the people that their rejection had eternal consequences. And that is the reason you and I cannot sit on the sidelines and watch people be destroyed without knowing that there is a way that they can be saved. And that is the message of the gospel. The gospel is not a religious tradition. It's not a better way to live one's life. It's not a code It's not anything other than salvation to those who are lost. It is the truth that sets people free. And it is what every single person, when they stand before God on that day, will be judged by. Whether an individual received the forgiveness offered by Jesus Christ or that individual rejected the offer to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And that will be it. So I don't know where each of you are here today spiritually, but you have to settle one thing. The eternal thing the most important thing, may I say nothing else really even matters except for this one thing. Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ which has been provided for us on the cross? Are you trusting in what Jesus did for your salvation? And if you have, then the Bible says, You are a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The blood of Jesus has washed your sins away. You are forgiven. Your name is not only written in the Lamb's book of life, but you will be eternally with Jesus in heaven forever the moment you take your last breath here. That's what it's all about. And if you have received that forgiveness then you have an obligation to share that forgiveness. And so let's pray. We're going to take communion this morning and just see how the Lord directs us here. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word is truth, Lord. No man or human could have ever made this up. And so, Lord, we look to you now, the author and finisher of our faith, We pray for anybody here or listening that they would settle the issue right now as to their eternal destiny. Let me just remind you, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin requires judgment. It is proper for God to judge our sin and judge us as sinners. But it doesn't have to be that way because 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you now would put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, washed away. Do that now. Do not wait. Do not presume on anything other than the decision now is on your lap. And if you are a believer here today, let's rejoice and thank God for that. Let's rejoice in that. And let's pray that God would use us to bring others to Christ. The ushers are going to come forward now and they're going to pass out the communion elements. And I would encourage you just to continue praying Continue to fellowship with the Lord. As they're passing around the communion elements, just hang on to it and we'll take it all together. But let's just continue to seek the Lord, to pray, to interact the Lord, interact with the Lord during this time. He took our place. He took what we deserved as one who did not deserve. As we think about these elements and what they represent, we must think about and understand how much God loves us. That's why He did what He did. His dying love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Communion is for those who are saved. The Bible tells us not to take communion if we are not saved. Because by taking communion, we're saying we receive what Jesus has done for us. So if you haven't received what Jesus has done for you, then it's not good to take communion. But it's better to receive what Jesus has done now and then take communion. And so this, this bread, it reminds us of the body, the human body, the physical body that Jesus took. He took it on when he came into the world. And he gave it up fully and completely on the cross. So as we think about our participation in the bread of communion that we're holding, let's remember, Jesus gave his whole self for us. Let's partake of the bread together. This cup, it represents the blood of Christ, which washes away our sins. It's the only way that our sins could have been washed away, that a sinless person, which was only Christ, would die as a sacrifice for our sins. And so it is His sinless blood that washes us of our sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, no matter what you've done, you stand before a holy God as sinless, as accepted, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are washed. You are forever washed by the blood that was shed at the cross. So we're here to remember that. So let's partake of the cup together. Let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord in song before we leave. One more time. If anyone here would like prayer this morning about anything, we're going to have our prayer team, teams come up front. 
and just make your way up front as we sing this last song. They'll be happy and excited to pray with you. God bless you, and let's worship the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.